Just to go over the announcements, a uh, reminder, we've got the emergency notification list out in the fellowship hall, so make sure you sign up. We have your information there. Also, daylight savings time begins a week from Saturday. Christmas boxes are out in the fellowship hall, and we have about 10 or 11 slots open on the Grand Canyon trip if you're interested. So please uh, please let us know. Also, somebody left this up on the uh, desk. If you haven't yet decided who you're going to vote for or who you're going to vote against in the uh, presidential election, uh, Faith and Freedom has a little voter guide that, um, that they put out that somebody left here, and it goes through a list of about uh, 10 or 12 different issues and where uh, Hillary stands on those issues and where Trump stands on those issues, and I put those down on the table in front. So just in case uh, you haven't uh, been awake, been alert, paying attention, and you have no clue, uh, you can take a look at that, okay? All right, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. If you haven't noticed, we've got new lights. Probably looks a little different on the camera. So it's trying to compete with the light of the word, I think. It is I almost need to put my sunglasses on in here. It is really bright, so it'll take a little while to get used to this. <clears throat> Before we get started, we'll uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Scripture emphasizes the need to be walking by the Spirit, but when we sin, we're walking according to the sin nature, and to recover, we need to confess sin to God. We need to keep short accounts, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful we can come together that we can worship you, focus on your word, and that you illuminate our thinking through the truth of your word. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray that that uh, during this election cycle that you will, before the voting comes about, really make some more issues very, very clear. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct in the uh, outworking of the election, and we know that your sovereign will will be uh, carried out. But Father, we pray that we might have leaders who uh, respect the Constitution and who respect uh, Scripture and the right to worship as we see fit, and that we might be able to carry out your plan in our lives and to witness and to support Israel and to continue to teach the whole counsel of your word. And Father, we pray that tonight as we study and begin a uh, doctrine that is uh, challenging for some of us, uh, some more than others, but all of us to some degree, we pray that you would help us to uh, face this with objectivity and humility, that we may apply what the Scripture says. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, one other announcement. At the beginning of Tuesday night, I read an email that came in from uh, Danny Burroughs up in, up in the... Uh, Tyler Longview area about this issue with the voting machines. There have been more things that have come out on this. One thing that we need that that uh, is apparently a major problem is some people are really enthusiastic about voting for uh, Donald Trump. And so what they do is they go in and they punch or pull the lever to vote a straight Republican ticket and then to make sure that everybody that that, that Trump is going to get selected or some other candidate is going to get selected, they go and punch that secondly, which turns everything to nothing, okay? So there's a lot of this is voter error, not machine tampering. So people just make sure that after you vote that you check and make sure, because at least the screens that we use here, um, they show what the, uh, what, 
Wait, speak up a little bit. You can vote straight ticket. You can vote straight ticket. But if there's two or three on the other party you want, you can go pick those and that works. Does it? Okay, I've heard that it doesn't, but... I always, when I was working, I always told me that you can vote straight ticket, but change to the other few that you want. That way you don't have to go through the whole ballot. Okay, well, just just make sure that you check before you finalize your vote. That's the main thing. Just make sure that it's going to tabulate the way you want it to. Okay, we are and have been in an important section of 1 Peter, and for the last uh, several lessons, we have been focusing on the section from verse 13 down through verse uh, 17, dealing with submission to the authority of the king. Very important. I want to uh, clean up some thoughts on government and obedience to government before we wrap that up completely uh, this evening, before we move on into the into the next uh, into the next section, and then we're going to then I'm just going to introduce it because the next section, if you look at it, begins to talk about uh, submission in relation to uh, servants to masters, or, or, or they, these would really be household slaves. They're not servants in the sense of somebody hired. They are they're slaves. They're just marginally better than the field slaves. And then uh, wives are to be submissive to their husbands. And then he goes on and develops the model, the exemplar for this, uh, which is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to start looking at this because in our society, because of uh, one of the negative aspects of Americanism and American worldview is we emphasize the role of the individual. But that the negative... Uh, the dark side of that is that people tend to be uh, very strong-willed and uh, have a tendency to oppose authority, which is not the mandate of Scripture. Scripture, and, we, and it's often misunderstood. It's amazing how your sin nature works to say, well, if you say the Bible means this, and, and if you're not careful when they start describing this, they slide it all the way to the extreme so And then they say, so you're either doing that, which means to be an absolute doormat and have people roll over you all the time, or you mean something else, neither of which is biblical. So they tend to set up, well, well, it's either A or B, and they completely leave, leave out a third option, which is a logical fallacy called uh, uh, the law of the excluded middle. So there's the biblical view here has to be understood, and we'll spend some time uh, with looking at some quotes from uh, ancient thinkers, Aristotle, Plato, Plutarch, a uh, number of others, Seneca, uh, emphasized uh, how they emphasize this concept of the structure in the household, the authority structure inside the household, and uh, the role of children, which Peter doesn't talk about, but Paul does, so we'll touch on it, the role of slaves, the role of wives. And it's interesting because what you normally hear from uh, people who are inclined towards um, equal rights for women and that women shouldn't be doormats and they should have equal say and who are influenced by uh, what was called the women's uh, liberation movement, women's equality movement, is that they tend to overrepresent and wrongly represent this because what Peter is saying and what Paul is saying, if you understand the context of Greco-Roman culture and other cultures in the ancient ancient uh, world, is that women were basically classified as as equal to um, cattle. Uh, much as it is stated in Islam, they had no rights whatsoever. So th there is a huge shift. In fact, I was reading uh, one uh, uh, lady today, a, a woman theologian, has THM, um, PhD, taught for many years at, uh, at Wheaton, and would be inclined in that direction, and she presented an excellent case with that summary, saying that by ignoring the con cultural context of the day, 
that many people think that the Bible is saying one thing when what Paul says about the role of women and the significance of women and the role of children even and the role of servants is is not what uh, is often uh, presented because uh, that women are elevated to a very high position biblically. And so we'll take a look at that as we go through this. So from that we see that uh, the, the culture says submission is demeaning, but what the scripture teaches is submission to authority is what honors God. Now we started off, I'm just going to do a quick review. First Peter 2.13, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance. That's the Greek word hupotasso, which is the one we see in verse 18 for servants and the one we see in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1 for wives. And that's important because it shows that there is a parallel between each of these spheres of authority and responsibility. And so it's whatever is true in one sphere would be equally true in the others based on on word usage. That we're to submit to every uh, creation ordinance or creaturely institution um, for the Lord's sake. It's always related to back to our understanding of God. That is always so important. Whenever we talk about anything, we always have to go back to the person and the nature and the essence of God. So we're to submit to every creaturely ordinance. There are exceptions, as we've noted, uh, for the Lord's sakes, whether to the king is supreme or to governors. Those are as to those who are sent by him, that is the governor, for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. And I started last time showing how throughout this next section, Peter always has this contrast between those who are doing good, and this is intrinsic good. This isn't human good, simple morality. He is talking about it in terms of the believer who is walking in obedience to the Lord. And we saw this in contrast, like uh, in First Peter three sixteen and 17, that Christians who are doing well, who are doing good, who are obeying the Lord will be defamed as evildoers. And then Verse 17 is one of those difficult passages that it's better to, if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good, doing the right thing the right way, than for doing evil. Of course, there's a certain number of people who are doing the right thing the wrong way, and they suffer the consequences uh, justly for that. So that's another theme that runs through this section as Peter is saying, uh, we're going to suffer unjustly, the pattern for that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we ought to be prepared for that because that is what honors the Lord and uh, is important. So 1 Peter 2.15, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And there we see that, that there is a certain... Uh, evidentiary value to the believer's obedience. It is a witness with the life as opposed to a witness with the tongue, that by doing good, by living a life of honor and integrity, respecting the laws, respecting the king, respecting the government, it puts to silence those who are foolish, those who wish to accuse uh, Christians of all sorts of evil things. And remember, the context here is a Roman Empire, which is has deified, in many cases, Caligula was deified, Claudius was deified, Nero later would deify himself. And so they see these other religions as, and including Christianity, uh, because it was new and they weren't sure what, it, what, it, what they believed, they see that as a co co competition for the emperor. So they are fearful that this new religion or any other religion in the empire would bring in ideas that would challenge the security and the stability of the empire. And what's interesting to note is that within both Greek culture and Roman culture, 
there is a strong emphasis on divine institution two and divine institution three. I didn't say a biblical emphasis. You know, it is a human viewpoint pagan emphasis, but they recognize that the family unit and the order of the household and the order within the family is the key to stability within the empire. Now, one of the things I'll look at as we go into this is where they distort these their understanding of these divine institutions, just as uh, we see in our own culture today. But they did understand that without a, a stable family unit, where authority was structured within the home, followed within the home, uh, then the nation, the empire itself, uh, would collapse. So any religion that came in, for example, the worship of Isis, not the Isis we think of in uh, uh, the current day Islamic um, terrorist organization, but the worship of the Egyptian god Isis uh, a- actually reversed the roles of men and women. And so this caused a breakdown in the family structure, breakdown in marriage. And so this was viewed very antagonistically by the Roman Empire because they saw that as a threat to the order and stability of the of the empire. So we'll look at that a little bit. But the idea here is that our lives as as Christians, by modeling obedience to authority and authority orientation, even when the person in authority may not be worthy of it or we are being treated unjustly, is a a tool of evangelism. It's not going to get anybody saved because there's no content there, but it may bring about a certain amount of of questioning. First Peter two twenty, first Peter three six, first Peter three seventeen, third John eleven all contrast doing good, which is the good of the that is the result of the Holy Spirit, the product of the Holy Spirit, versus uh, doing doing evil, and so um, Peter says this is the will of God. And I covered this last time that there are three things we can look at in terms of the will of God as as the the language that we use by saying something is God's will. Often people mean category two or category three. We have to be careful not to fall back on that as some form of fatalism or some rationalization for our own lack of uh, responsible behavior. Uh, So the first category is the revealed will of God, and we live our lives according to what God says to do. Now, there are times when we do what the Lord says to do, but we may not get the result that we think we should get. We think that, well, if I obey the Lord, I'm going to be blessed. And uh, one example that comes to mind is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, well, we're not going to bow down to the idol. We're going to do what God says to do. They knew the will of God, and uh, the punishment was going to be death in the fiery furnace. They said, but even if God doesn't deliver us, we're not going to do it. (coughs) Recognizing, (coughs) Recognizing that sometimes when we do the right thing, we don't get the results that we think we will get. We are always to do the right thing the right way, but sometimes in God's sovereign or permissive will, there are other consequences, and that's important. Some people shipwreck their faith because they say, well, I did everything God wanted me to do, and look at what happened, and then they blame God, and that's not how it works because sometimes God is testing us. Uh, You go back to Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, that God allowed false teachers who had dreams and visions, and those dreams and visions came true, but God said, it's a test. If you follow the dreamer or the visionary, and they're um, contradicting the Word of God, contradicting the Scripture, then I let that happen to test you to see if you would listen to my Word or listen to the dreamer of dreams and the one who saw visions. So God has a revealed will. That's the only will we can know. We can't say, well, 
Look at how screwed up the American people are. We're going to get the person that we deserve. It's all God's will, and so I'm not going to vote or I'm not going to be involved in the system. What we're doing is we're trying to prejudge what God's will is going to be. You don't know that. Nobody knows that. Nobody knows what is going to happen on on November the 8th or how it's going to happen. And and that's true about whatever a situation in life is going to be. We have to do our very best to ensure the correct outcome. But sometimes there are other factors that God's aware of. And so he's bringing about some other end. That's the sovereign will of God. Sometimes theologians call it the decretive will of God, which means this is what God has decreed to take place, not what he's revealed that he wants to take place, but what he has uh, decreed. Um, it, it, we define the sovereign will of God as to what God determines to do or permits or allows to do apart from what is revealed in Scripture. But we can only know God's sovereign will after the fact. If you think you know it ahead of time, well, you might be a good guesser. But that's all you are. And you can't make decisions based on that. That's called mysticism or foolishness or both. Third is the permissive will of God. Now, usually when we talk about God just allowing or permitting something to happen, that's usually something negative. Uh, So it's what God allows to happen, which usually implies something that's not positive or good, such as sin, evil, rebellion, irresponsibility, corruption, or, or something like that. God permits or allows the corruption in the world to work itself out. So there are tornadoes and hurricanes and shipwrecks all kinds of things like that, and God allows those things to take place, uh, but nevertheless, they're not out of his control. So there are times, though, that we do the right thing the right way, and Peter says it's better if it's the will of God, that would be the permissive will of God, to allow suffering for doing good than for doing evil. So we do the right thing the right way, and we get persecuted, we get thrown in jail, we get uh, prosecuted, we lose our job. Uh, it's just like I was reading yesterday a case similar to what happened here in in Houston back when we were fighting the bathroom ordinance, and uh, our lovely mayor Anise Parker uh, subpoenaed the the sermons of five uh, pastors here in Houston and wanted them to give their sermons, their notes, their tr- every all their study material, everything like that, which is an egregious violation of the First Amendment. And fortunately, we had a strong pastor's association here that fought that and won. But now there's a set black Seventh-day Adventist pastor who was uh, uh, worked for some branch of the government in Georgia, and now the Georgia uh, state government is subpoenaing all of his records. He was let go because of his... Uh, supposed stand against homosexuality and homosexual marriage and a number of other things that weren't politically correct. So, uh, And then after they had uh, let him go, uh, they subpoenaed his sermons and all of this. So that is being fought right now in uh, Georgia. See, the way it works is evil keeps trying to probe, and they're going to probe, and they're going to probe, and they're going to probe until they finally uh, win something. And so the day is coming. I remember 15 uh, to 20 years ago saying the day would come when the Supreme Court was going to legalize same-sex marriage, and then uh, every pastor who believed in the Bible would be under threat. And we are under threat. And these kinds of things are happening. Um, there was a case also in Georgia uh, of a uh, an official with the uh, fire chief a black fire chief who was a Sunday school teacher and wrote a book. And in that book, there was one paragraph where he talked about uh, God's standard for marriage. And so when they found out that uh, he had written that on his own time and he was a Sunday school teacher and taught that, then he was fired from the uh, fire department. So these kinds of things are, are, are going on. So when we do the right thing, we may suffer 
for it. But the scripture says it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Back to 1 Peter 2.15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you may, it's potential, you may not put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You may be in a situation where they're just going to bully you and intimidate you and continue to make life miserable uh, for you. But notice that this has an apologetic value. And the word apologetic is a word that means it provides a rational proof or defense for something. It's a legal term. And we'll run into this in 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That means to be completely occupied with Christ, to set him apart in your thinking and always be ready. And always be ready doesn't mean that when you're in your study, you can, uh, or sitting at your desk or by yourself, and you can answer questions in your mind. It's when you're in a hurry. It's when you're in the grocery store. It's when you are talking to somebody at lunch or somebody uh, during a coffee break at work, not on company time, but on your own time. And somebody says, asks you a question, how come you are always going to church? How come you are, you seem to be different? You don't gripe, you don't complain, you have a, an upbeat, positive attitude. Why do you have this hope that you're able to give them an answer without saying, ah, I need to run home and find my notes from Bible class. If it's not in your soul, you don't have it. We got to get that in our souls. So, verse 15, we need to be focused on the word that uh, by the way we live, it silences the ignorance of foolish men. Now, remember, the psalmist said that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He is a fool because he doesn't believe in God. He's, he's not rejecting God because he's a fool. So it doesn't matter how high your IQ is or how many advanced degrees you have. If you don't believe God is real, God exists, and God is the creator God of the universe, then the Bible classifies you as a fool. And so the person who rejects God is a fool. He says in his heart and his thinking that there is no God. So these are the ignorant, foolish men that Peter is talking about here. And he goes on to say, as free, we are free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, to disguise or to cover up uh, the, the uh, sneakiness of the sin nature. But we are to be bond servants of God. Now, this is an important uh, word here. Uh, I just want to point this out right now. This word bondservant is the word doulos. And often in English, because of the uh, uh, lack of or the fact that we don't have slavery anymore and for a desire to help people understand um, and how they can apply it, the word doulos is often translated as a servant or bondservant. And the idea of a doulos is a slave is the lowest person in the culture of the day was a slave. He had no rights. He had no privileges. He had no standing before the law. He was virtually invisible and the most disenfranchised person in the culture. And yet this is the term that is used to describe the believer to help get across this idea that we are to be obedient to God, we are to be submissive to God. And so we have this word that's used here, and it sets us up for where Peter is going in the next sections, talking about slaves being uh, submissive to their masters and wives being submissive to their uh, to their husbands. And it would also apply to the fact that we are to be submissive uh, to the governing authorities. All of those are tied together. But when it comes to talking about being slaves of God and being bondservants of God, it ought to take us back to some critical passages 
in, uh, in Paul's writings. And the passage that ought to come to mind is the passage in Romans chapter 6. Now remember at the beginning of Romans 6, Paul sets up a, a rhetorical question at the beginning. He says, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? What he has done in chapter 5 is to lay out that, that because of sin, God has done all of these things for us, and his grace has abounded to us. And so he's heading off at the path, the idea that, or the rationalization, well, well, if we did all of that, uh, and we got all that grace, well, let's sin some more, and we'll get even more grace. It doesn't matter if Christ has paid for our sins, they're paid for, and if I'm forgiven, then let's just go do whatever I want to do and live licentiously. So that's the same idea. Paul says, no, not at all. May genoita, may it never be. And then he sets this discussion up in Romans 6. But in that discussion, what he talks about is that our slavery has changed. That as a Christian, we were originally non-Christians, and we were slaves to our sin nature. We couldn't do anything but obey the sin nature. We were as enslaved to the sin nature as anyone who followed Spartacus in his revolt against Rome, as any black slave in America uh, during the uh, time before the American uh, uh, war between the states. And, uh, and that's our slavery to the sin nature. No option, only domineering tyranny from the sin nature. So in talking about our freedom from the sin nature, in Romans 6.18, Paul said, and having been set free, that's what happens at salvation. We're set free. We throw off the chains of the sin nature. It's still there. We've been emancipated, but we're still living on the plantation. And what we do every time we sin is we go back and say, okay, I'm going to put the chains back on. So he says, having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's our new position, our new identity. Think back in the analogy with, with uh, blacks who were set free um, at the end of the, uh, uh, of the war between the states, and they became, they became free, but they still acted. They still thought like slaves. You see the same thing with the uh, Jews, when they left Egypt, they still thought like slaves. They didn't think in terms of freedom. And that same thing is true for many believers. They don't think in terms of their new freedom and that we're no longer slaves of sin, but we are now slaves of righteousness. And the point is there's no middle ground. You're always a slave. You're either going to be a slave to your sin nature or you're going to be a slave to righteousness but it's your choice. That goes back to divine institution number one. You get and I get to decide every day, am I going to put myself back under the, uh, the tyranny of my sin nature and live like, a, like I'm still a slave to sin, or am I going to realize that I've been set free in Christ and I am now a slave of God, a slave of Christ, and a slave of righteousness? Now, in Romans 6, 19, Paul goes on to say, I speak in human terms. So he's just using a, a, an analogy to help us understand uh, what he is saying. He says, I speak in herman, human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That's our mortality. It says, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness, that was before you were saved, and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present, that's the command, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness or for sanctification, or we might translate it for spiritual growth. And then in verse 22, he says, but now having been set free from sin, that's what happened at salvation. We still have a sin nature, but we're free from its tyranny. We, and having become slaves of God, our new position, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Now, that's not e eternal life salvation. That is talking about realizing the benefits and the fruits of eternal life today because it's conditioned upon becoming a slave of God experientially. 
and that leads to the fruit of holiness, which is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which comes as a result of spiritual growth and walking by the Spirit. So having said that, Peter then goes on to wrap up this short section uh, dealing with honoring the king. And so he summarizes this, and it also a, sets up a transition uh, into, the next, into the next section. He says, honor all. Most translations put people in there, but uh, that's the implication. But it just says in the Greek, honor all. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we have four commands there. Now, grammar is going to play a little bit of an important role here to understand this, but the first command is the priority command. The first command, honor all, is it's the same verb we see at the end with honor the king. It means to honor him, to respect him. There's even an implication there of paying taxes. Honoring someone is sometimes used in terms of making payments. For example, uh, uh, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that an elder who teaches well is worthy of double honor. That means the pastor should be paid twice what everybody else well, we live in a culture where the pastor is paid about half, which tells you how well people are really paying attention to the scripture. So honor all here has this, that, that concept of honor has something to do with, uh, with, with finances as well. So there's an implication uh, that you might see a little subtext there that would include uh, paying taxes. But um, uh, that's with honor the king. Honor all, that's the first command. And tamao means to pay honor, to respect. It doesn't necessarily mean to agree with. When you respect the authority of a parent, a husband, a father, a coach, a pastor, a teacher, a military commander, non-com, or commissioned officer, it doesn't mean you agree with them, but you uh, go along with and you obey them without griping or complaining or mumbling or grumbling or having a bad attitude because they're the person that God has put in charge over you. That doesn't mean you can't say, well, what about this and what about that? But they may be, I'm not taking any options. Shut up and do what I told you to do. I'm sure some of you have said that one way or another to your children or to an employee. Basically, we're going to do it the way I said to do it and you're going to like it or you won't have a job tomorrow. So that's the idea. Honor honor means to respect, obey, and it relates to all. All means most people, right? No, all means all. And why do we do this? We do this because every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, we are going to have a respect for them even though we might not agree with them. So that means we have to learn how to disagree, present options like Daniel did with wisdom and skill in order to make a case without making personalities or ego an issue. The second command is to love the brotherhood. This is the verb agapao, this is the same verb that Jesus used when he gave this command uh, at the end of the Seder meal in the upper room. And he said that we're to love one another as he loved us. So we're to love the brotherhood. That, this refers to uh, personal and impersonal love for all believers. Now, impersonal love does, means that we don't necessarily know them personally. They may be just somebody who comes, uh, uh, comes around, somebody that's unknown to us, but we are going to show love for them. And we've studied this. The prime example of this is the uh, uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, where the one uh, traveler is beaten up and left for dead and robbed, and the Samaritan who is 
usually maltreated by the by the Jew, comes along, takes this Jew, takes him to, binds up his wounds, dresses him, takes him to a an inn, sees that he's taken care of, gives him money, and provides for him, not because he's expecting anything in return, but because he's doing the right thing. He is showing what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. So we are to love Christians above and beyond that, love the brotherhood. And then fear God. And this is the word phobeo, where the, the noun is phobos, which is where we get our word phobia, or uh, to indicate fear, but it has the idea of showing reverential respect or even obedience. So it is a metaphor, metaphorically used for obedience. We're to fear God because he is the ultimate authority in the universe. We are to obey him. And, and, and the fact that he's mentioned first ahead of the next one is to honor the king. Now, I want you to notice that in each, in the first one, honor all, we have an aorist imperative. And the next three are all going to be present imperatives. And the difference is that present tense is talking about something that should be a continuous present reality, standard operating procedure. This should characterize the believer all the time. And the first command is stated as an aorist imperative because it's, it's, it's a priority. It's emphasizing this. Uh, this would be the bold face, almost a summary of the other three. And then the last command is to honor the king. And again, it means to show respect for authority. And it doesn't mean that you agree with the policy or the king. You may not even like the person who is uh, in authority. But that's the closing comment. So that's the summary. And the idea that we are to honor all is very similar to a command that we have uh, at the beginning of the Ephesians 5 uh, section where uh, Paul talks about husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church and uh, wives submitting to your husbands, children obeying your parents. The first command in that string is also a submission command, and it is submit to one another, that there's this mutual submission. That is, there's an attempt for believers to get along with each other, and so that shows that within any of the authority relationships uh, within the home or within society are not to be seen as just autocratic uh, tyrants uh, handing down dictates from on high. That is not what the scripture teaches. So we are to uh, love one another and uh, deal with one another, and husbands are to uh, treat their wives, as we'll see in this passage, as if they are weaker vessels. Now, I've had women say, well, I hate, the, you know, the Bible calls me a weaker vessel. Well, physically, there's elements of being weaker, but I've seen, I've known some women, and you have too, that are a lot stronger than some men. But the text says, treat them as if they are weaker vessels. It doesn't say they are. It's a comparison. It's indicating, showing respect and deference and honor to your wife. It is not saying, it's not making an ontological statement about the the weakness of women. Okay, just as a reminder, as we get ready to go into the next section, I want to remind you about the five divine institutions. We're, I want to take a little time tonight and next week just to refresh our thinking on the divine institutions and put one last little uh, comment in relation to... Um, the fourth and fifth divine institutions here. The first three divine institutions, first of all, individual responsibility. And there's an authority there. Every individual is responsible to God for the decisions they make. The second divine institution is marriage. The authority is the husband. Third divine institution is the family. The authority is the parents. The fourth divine institution is human government, and depending upon the form of government, that's the executive branch, it's the king, it's the dictator, it's the uh, 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 whoever it is, that's the person who is in charge. And then the nations, each nation is accountable uh, to God. 
And we see that in passages like Acts 17. Now, I want you to notice this. This is so important, especially in light of a lot of the debates going on in relation to border security. Without border security, if you just have open borders, which is what uh, Hillary Clinton wants, and I think on this point alone, uh, we have to vote, do whatever we can to keep her out of it, out of the presidency, because uh, she wants to open the door to all of the Syrian refugees, not the Christian Syrian refugees, but all of the Muslim refugees. Uh, and they have an agenda, and that is to uh, destroy this country uh, religiously, socially, politically, and, every, and militarily. And so um, she wants to have open borders, not recognizing where borders come from. Borders are not a human invention any more than family or marriage or personal responsibility or human inventions. These are the institutions of God. Acts 17.26 says that God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So God is the one who sets the boundaries. Now we see the negative side of this in the Old Testament, that God determines their appointed times, which means their beginning and their end. There is a time when new nations and empires arise and times when they, when they fall and when they collapse. When God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, isn't this interesting? He told Abraham that that his descendants would leave the land, but then in the fourth generation, they would return to this land that God was giving them, the land of Canaan. For He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, he's talking about all these ethnic groups, the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Jebusites and the, um, all the other lights that were hanging out in Canaan at the time. And God said that um, uh, I, I'm going to treat them in grace. This is God's permissive will. We're going to give them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn to me. And we're going to let their negative volition, their sinfulness, work itself out until it reaches a point of no return. And God does that with human beings, too. And then human beings die under the sin unto death. But here he's going to bring this death to this nation. So he's announcing that Abraham's descendants would be out of the land until the sinfulness, the corruption of the Canaanites reached its full fruition, and then God would remove them from their land because of their sinfulness. And this happens. Look at uh, Leviticus uh, 18, uh, 24 and 25. We have... Uh, similar uh, statements there God says do not to the to the Israelites before they're going to go into the land he says do not defile yourselves with any of these things that is the idolatrous worship and practices of the Canaanites for by all these the the nations are defiled so God's warning the Israelites don't do what the pagans do because that defiles you This is what these nations in the land are doing, which I am casting out before you. So they've reached the uh, fruition of their sinfulness, and now God is going to remove them from their land. They they no longer will have a right to that land. And, And God says, for the land is defiled. See, we think of our sin as something that only affects us or the people around us or human beings but it affects the land uh, because people, because of their sinfulness, their self-absorption, they will abuse the land. They will uh, pollute the land. They will uh, do all kinds of things that destroy the land. They won't responsibly farm. I'm not talking about uh, environmentalism. That's another pagan uh, copycat to Scripture, Uh, What Scripture teaches is the responsible use of divine resources. Environmentalism ultimately is against human beings using or developing uh, natural resources. 
But if you're operating on self selfishness, then you're just going to destroy the land. If you uh, have read anything about the uh, American Aborigines, known as the Indians, that lived here, that they were not environmentalists. There's always this lie about, oh, they live so close to nature. Yeah, they live real close to nature, and they would trash nature. And you'd have uh, maybe two or three hundred um, Indians living in some encampment, and then once they had trashed it and they had uh, polluted everything around them, then they would just pack up and move somewhere else because uh, there was a lot of land and a lot of places to go. And so they would ruin one small piece of real estate and then go off somewhere else, and then they would ruin that. Not unlike a lot of uh, corporations and industries in, in America. And they're behaving irresponsibly. And as a result, whenever human beings behave irresponsibly, you're going to have one of two, respons uh, two consequences. Either there's going to be a, um, uh, there's going to be complete anarchy, because there's no control and people are go, just going to go the way of their sin nature, or some authority is going to step in and start taking away personal responsibility because if the individuals are not able to take care of themselves and behave responsibly, then the government's going to fill that vacuum. That's where we are today. Uh, we have a culture that is becoming more and more irresponsible. They are less and less educated, less and less knowledgeable. They don't know how to take care of things. And as a result of that, uh, the government is moving into that vacuum, and government always wants to move into that vacuum because they're power-hungry, and they're moving into that vacuum to take responsibility away from people and take it upon themselves, and, th and that's illegitimate. Um, people should have their own responsibility, but as people behave irresponsibly, they will destroy the land. So that's what Leviticus 18.25 means, for the land is defiled because of their negative volition and their horrible practices. Therefore, God says, I visit the punishments of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. And so in both of those passages, we see an affirmation uh, that national entities have a right to national borders, and that when they abuse that irresponsibly, then God is going to remove them uh, from those borders. There's another passage in Leviticus 20, verses 23 and 24. Leviticus 20, 23 and 24. God says, You shall not walk in the statutes of the nation which I am casting out before you, for they commit all these things, and therefore I abhor them. God has the right to remove people from their nation. So, uh, then we are going to get into this next section. And I'll just get into the first verse a little bit here. It's addressed to servants, and it addresses them as a class of people, but it's not the word douloi, which is the plural of doulos. It is the plural of oiketes. Now, you may remember that the Greek word is oikos, house. It's combined with namas, to mean house law or economy or dispensation, or economia. But oiketes is a name for a house slave. He's not a house servant. He's not paid. He is a house slave. He is only marginally better, uh, because of his environment, of the field slave. And so it's addressed to the lowest echelon of society. It is addressed to those who have no rights, no privileges, no standing before the law, who can be beaten and can be abused and can be maltreated uh, no matter what. And so Peter begins at the bottom, and he addresses the servants and, and the slaves, and he says, Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Now, remember, we just had that word fear, fear God. So he's connecting these ideas uh, together. So we are to fear God, but also the slave is to have that same kind of respect and uh, obedience to his master. This is the word uh, fabas here, the lower left. Uh, be submissive is the word hupatasso that runs through this whole section. 
that it is a participle here, but a participle often takes a tone of an imperative, so it's an imperative participle. It's a command. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. It doesn't say be submissive to your masters when they're right. It doesn't say submit to your masters when you agree with them. It doesn't say submit to your masters when they have the right idea about how to uh, clean the house or wash the clothes or cook the meal. It's just a blanket statement. No conditions, no exception. Be submissive to your masters with all uh, respect or all uh, fearful reverence. And then there's a um, qualification here, but it's not the one we want. It's not the one any of us like. But it's important for understanding how God views the significance of authority. It says, not only to the good and gentle... So, you know, you can transfer that. It's uh, obey the king, not only to the one who's right and and has integrity. Obey your master, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, to the one who's beating you, to the one who is uh, abusive to you. Now, in that culture, a slave had no legal right to escape. He would be in trouble. So they just... That's different from working for somebody or being an employee or being in a, um, any situation where you can voluntarily leave to protect yourself. They did not have that option. So they are to submit not only to the good or gentle, but also to the harsh. The point is we often justify our disobedience, our lack of respect, our hostility towards someone in authority over us because we're saying, well, they're just not doing it right. They're just not uh, obeying God. They're not a believer. They are, uh, they're just as horrible and unethical as they possibly can be. Uh, and we think that justifies us. But the scripture says that two wrongs never make a right. That's somewhere in second hesitations. But the point is doing the right thing the wrong way is wrong and doing the wrong thing the wrong way is wrong. And the only when we do the right thing the right way is it right. So, Uh, When we have masters or anyone who's in authority over us and they are out of line, it doesn't justify our being out of line. That word for harsh is the word scolios, which means crooked or bent. And it could apply, it's not used in the next verse, but it could apply when wives are told, be submissive to your own husbands, not, not somebody else's husband, your own husband, and even if some do not obey the word. See, that's parallel to being harsh. It's being disobedient to the word. He's carnal. Well, you can't, I, you can't ask me to submit to that guy. He, he's angry. He's, he's always out of control. He's, self, he's so selfish. He never listens to me. He never does whatever it is that I want him to do. Why should I listen to him? Because the Word of God says so. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the Word, they without a word may be. Notice it it doesn't say will be. It is a subjunctive. They might be. They might be won by the conduct of their wives. The implication there is if the wife is rebellious, they probably won't be won. Okay, but again, what's happening here is that Peter is laying down a continued principle through here that the right behavior on the part of the believer is going to possibly give a platform for evangelism. He doesn't say it will, but he's not saying the flip side is true, but I think the flip side is true. That if you're disobedient, if you're rebellious, if you're gripey, you're complaining, and you're uh, a grump all the time, and you don't uh, respect your uh, husband's authority, your boss's authority, uh, you don't respect the authority of your parents, then things are not going to go well. Ephesians 5.21, opening up that whole passage, and Ephesians 5 uses this same terminology, hupotasso, submitting to one another in the fear of God. That, I think, is so important. We get into these battles between men and women, and I've heard this ever since I 
first went into pastoral ministry. How can you say women have to submit? Well, men have to submit too. We're to submit to one another. Let's look at everything in context. Uh, the commands in Scripture are not not an excuse, husbands, for tyranny or for not listening to your wife or not caring about what she wants and what her desires are and listening to her. Frankly, there's a lot of times, men, that life would be a lot better if you'd listen to your wives. Trust me. You may not have empirical data on that, but... Um, I've noticed this many times in ministry that women have a certain perspective that um, it pays to pay attention to. And one of the things that I've done ever since I first went into pastoral ministry is to make sure that whenever I'm counseling a woman alone or a couple, that I always have hopefully a spiritually mature uh, woman who is insightful in the room because uh, I had a pastor tell me one time that women can pull the wool over any man's eyes without him knowing it uh, any which way they can and he will be fooled every single time so you need to always have another woman in the room because that keeps the woman you're counseling honest and I have seen that uh, every almost every time I've counseled with a woman whether they were married or not or whether it was with a husband and wife combined or an individual, I have seen this to be true. And probably 95% of the time, the woman that's been in there afterwards said, well, did you notice this? And did you notice that? And what about this? And what about that? And I'm, I'm like, I don't have a clue. But I in, immediately know, you know, you're absolutely right. And so that is very important. Husbands need to pay attention to their wives. It got Abraham in trouble one time with Hagar, but then when it got time after Hagar had Ishmael and she's having to go around with Sarai, uh, and Sarah said, you need to get rid of her. When God showed up, God said, you need to listen to your wife. So some people have made a big deal about the first one and said, see, we wouldn't have all this Middle Eastern trouble if Abraham had uh, not listened to his wife. Well, in that instance, if he hadn't listened to that piece of advice. But later on, God told him to listen to her in other areas. So it's not a universal. So we have a comparison then in Ephesians 5.24. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So that is category. Now, everything doesn't mean everything because we know that there are exceptions. Uh, Your husband can't demand of his wife to do something that's illegal or immoral uh, or anything that violates the Word of God. But other than that, they are to be subject to their husbands like they are subject to to the Lord. And there's a... I think there's a barometer there. Now, husbands, you don't get off scot-free. I think that men who are not submissive to the government, that tells you a lot about how they're not submissive to Christ. Every one of us is under authority in one area or another, and how you respond to one authority is often a a mirror, a barometer of how you respond to any authority, whether it's the Lord or someone else. And so that's uh, that's what's implied here. That gets convicting, so we'll move on. Colossians 3.18 echoes that. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. It it is related. you're, You're not obeying your husband because he's such a great, wonderful, wise, spiritually mature man. If he's under 40, he's not even close yet. But you're submitting to him because the Lord said so. It's a reflection of your submission and your... Uh, obedience to the Lord. Titus says this, Paul writing to Titus says, exhort bondservant slaves, exhort slaves to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back. Don't be a smart mouth. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Hebrews 12, divine institution number three, the family. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Uh, 
Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits? And notice a comparison. Your respect for your earthly father mirrors your respect for your heavenly father. James says, submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Even the Lord Jesus Christ is submitted to the Father. If he, 1 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now when all things are made subject to him, that's the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father. So being submissive is not degrading. It's not demeaning to submit to an authority. Wives, when you submit to your husband, that honors God. Even if the guy's a fool, it honors God. Jesus submits to the Father. This is honorable. It's not demeaning. We have a culture, though, that has taught us to think that any talk of submission and obedience in the home is demeaning to women. Um, We have to renovate our thinking in that area. Now, when all things are made subject to him, the Son, then the Son himself will be subject to the Father, who puts all things under him, the Son, that God may be all in all. That is what happens at the Uh, in the new heavens and the new earth. And so what Peter is going to argue here is that learning to submit to an unjust or wrong authority is patterned after Christ. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. He's the tupas. He's the example, the type, that you should follow his steps who committed no sin, nor is deceit found in his mouth. That's a quote from Isaiah 53, 9. We'll look at that next time. And then the example, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges rightly. He turned it over to the Lord and let the Lord handle it. Even though he was sentenced to death and was crucified a horrible death on the cross, It was unjust. He submitted to the authority over him, and if he hadn't submitted to a tyrant, we wouldn't have salvation. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, focusing us back. This whole section here is talking about, is a quote from Isaiah, quotes from Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we have the Messiah presented as what? The suffering slave. The suffering slave. What's the focus here? It's on slaves obeying your masters. And so to understand everything that is said about submission in the next two chapters, we we go back to what happens with Christ on the cross. And we'll resume here uh, next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and to be reminded that we need to develop uh, only, and we can only develop it through the Holy Spirit, develop humility and grace orientation, submission to you, to submission to your authority, means submission to other areas of authority in our lives. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with these things, that we might have the objectivity to see in each of our lives where we are uh, chafing against the authorities that are over us, and that we might learn true humility and true submission. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.